Welcome to Torati Mecha Parsha with YoYu Women's Initiative. My name is Orly Kanner, and it is my privilege to be learning Sefer Shmot, beginning with Parshat Shmot with you. So let me begin with a quick overview of the Parsha. Parshat Shmot is divided into five prakim. In Perak Aleph, in chapter one, the family of Yaakov assimilates and populates in Egypt. Induced by the fear of the increasing expansion and wealth of the Jewish people, Paro enacts a series of decrees that result in the eventual enslavement of the Jewish people. To stem their continued population explosion, Paro orders the midwives to kill the Jewish baby boys interutero. The midwives defy Paro's orders. The midwives are then divinely rewarded and Paro decrees that all baby boys be thrown into the Nile. Chapter 2 tells of the marriage of a man from the house of Levi to the daughter of Levi, which results in the birth of Moshe. In hopes of saving his life, he is cast into the Nile, whereupon he is found and saved by the daughter of Paro. As a young man in search of his brethren, Moshe is overwhelmed by the sight of his brother's suffering, leading him to kill an Egyptian taskmaster that he finds brutally beating a Jewish slave. Forced to flee for his life, he finds refuge in Midian in the house of Yitro, whose daughter he marries and begins a family. The Torah shifts focus from Moshe in Midian back to the Jewish people in Mitzrayim and relates that Paro is succeeded by an even more nefarious Paro. His decrees are replaced by even harsher and more draconian ones, resulting in the Jewish people screaming and shrieking. Their prayers rise to heaven, where Hashem hears their cries and remembers his promise to their forefathers. Paragimel chapter 3 describes the famous Sne Boer Baesh Ve'enenu Ukal, the burning bush that is not consumed, where God first appears to Moshe and shares with Moshe his divine plan for the redemption of the Jewish people and their leadership role that Moshe has been chosen by God to assume. Moshe fiercely and passionately argues against his assignment as leader of Israel and agent of liberation. In chapter 4, Moshe continues resisting his assignment and again argues against the viability of God's plan for redemption. To validate his authenticity, God gives him wonders to perform before the Jewish people and before Paro. In response to Moshe's pleas, God designates Aharon to be his spokesman. On the way back to Egypt, Moshe is almost killed due to his being remiss in circumcising his son. Chapter 5 describes Moshe and Aharon's first encounter with Paro. Rather than mitigate the harsh labor, Paro further intensifies and increases the Jewish people's load. The people are infuriated with Moshe for making things worse, and our Parsha ends with Moshe railing against God for making him the agent of wreaking further pain upon B'nai Yisrael. Clearly, the decrees of Paro appear to be a blueprint for the design of a Holocaust. His anti-Semitic agenda, his flagitious, false, and fear-inducing propaganda campaign is the formula that was replicated by so many later empires bent on racial cleansing. The devolution of the Jewish people to slave laborers, their degeneration from people of note, of name, of dignity, of wealth, of nobility, 
to a swarm of shratzim, vayishritsu, to rodents that swarm the land, is a description that has been echoed in our history. The recent Nazi Holocaust eerily duplicates the Egyptian Holocaust, the Jewish people devolving from an aristocratic class of names to a slave class of tattooed numbers, enslaved and exterminated. Certainly Hitler needed only to follow what had been flawlessly designed and executed by Paro to achieve his diabolic agenda. But unfortunately, so too Neville, the reactions and responses of the helpless, overpowered Jewish people. That too was tragically replicated. Brutalized, beaten, unarmed and unaided, the Jewish people became numb with resignation, paralyzed with no hope in sight. There was, however, one anomaly, a strange phenomenon that occurred in the Holocaust of Mitzrayim that did not occur in other Holocausts and that our rabbis are struck by as well. For even after Paro decrees harsh, back-breaking labor, and even after the Jewish people are reduced to slaves, they continue to reproduce in great numbers. V'ka'ashir ya'anu oto, ken yirbe, v'chen yifrotz, v'yakutsu mipnei b'nei Yisrael. So much did the Jewish people continue to increase that the Egyptians were stunned, sickened, and horrified by them. This phenomenon of reproduction seems to defy, to run counter to every social norm and the very nature of the human being. For when life is fearful, painful, economically, politically, or socially, people do not bring children into the world, hence the low birth rates during wars and economic depressions. Our rabbis insist that this anomaly is directly due to the Nashim Tzitkaniyot, the righteous Jewish women of Egypt. And it is in their merit that the Jewish people were redeemed. But how? How did these righteous women change the natural course of man? The Midrash Tanchuma in Parshat Pekude tells us the rest of the story. Yisrael ba'avodat perech Gazar alehem paro, shelo yihiyu yishenim bivatehen, shelo yihiyu mishamshim mitotehen. Ama Rabbi Shimon bar Chalavta, mahayu benot Yisrael osot, yordot lishav mayim min hayor, vahakadosh baruchu haya mazmin lahem dagim ketanim betoch kadehen. Behen mochrotu mivashlot mehen, velokhot mehen yayin, velokhot la sade uma achilot et baalehem sham, shene emar, uvachol avoda basade. Mishayu ochlim bishotin, notlot hamar ot, uma bitot bahem im baalehem. Zot omeret anina emimcha, vize omer anina emimech. Umitochkach, hayu margilin atzman lideta ava, ufarin viravin. These are the accounts of the tabernacle and the bronze of the offering. You find that while the Israelites were making bricks in Egypt, Paro decreed that they were not to sleep at home so that they would not have relations with their wives. 
Rabbi Shimon, the son of Chalafta, said, What did the Israelite women do? They would go to the Nile to draw water, and the Holy One, blessed be he, would fill their jugs with little fish. Small fish arouse sexual desires, it says in Gemara Brachot. They would sell some, cook and prepare the fish, and buy some wine with the proceeds of the sale, and then bring it to their husbands in the fields. While the men were eating and drinking, the women would take out their copper mirrors and glance into them with their husbands. They would say, I am more attractive than you. And the men would reply, I am more handsome than you. In that way, they would arouse their sexual desires and become fruitful and multiply. The Holy One, blessed be He, remembered them and caused them to conceive on the spot. Thus, they reared all the hosts that were to depart as it said, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. Mirrors are a strange tool. As Dr. Aviva Zornberg illustrates in her brilliant book, The Particulars of Rapture, before the invention of cameras, mirrors were the only vehicle through which people were able to see their own faces. The only way one could see their entire self their entire body connected as one entity, their entire self upright. Mirrors are the only mechanism man has to see himself clearly and wholly. Fascinatingly, while mirrors enable us to take a good hard look at who we are in our entirety today, the only vehicle that gives us the ability to take a hard look at our real selves in the present, they also serve as the vehicle through which we can see our past in our reflection. Our father's smile, our mother's eyes, our grandparents' coloring. They are also the mechanism through which we can dream and imagine a better version of ourselves in the future. Only through a mirror reflecting the me of today can I see the me of yesterday and a vision of the me of tomorrow, of what can be, of what potential lies within me? The Jewish people, through back-breaking slavery, demeaned and debased, defamed and denamed, were dismembered, cut apart, cut off from whom they were, from their past, from whence they emerged with no hope of a future for themselves or for Klal Yisrael. This is the tragedy of Gezeira, a decree, which also means to cut, ligzor, to chop off and dismember. That was the very Gezeira of the Brit Ben Abitarim when God informed Avraham of the slavery that he had decreed. Avraham in Parshat Lech Lechan Sefer Breshi was told to cut the animals. They were chopped apart. However, the Torah tells us etatzipor lo batar. The bird Avraham did not cut in half. Rashi explains that the bird was not chopped, chopped apart because the bird represents the Jewish people. And God will never allow the Jewish people to be completely chopped apart. In a beautiful Midrash, in our Parsha, describing the symbolism of the sneh of the burning bush, B'nai Yisrael are likened to a bird caught in a thorn bush. With relative ease, the bird enters the thorn bush 
as the thorns turn inward. And so too with relative ease, Bnei Yisrael entered and assimilated into Egypt. But to escape, the bird will inevitably endure cuts and pains. Yes, the bird Bnei Yisrael will suffer, their feathers tarred, their skin cut, bruised and scathed, even temporarily dismembered. But they will emerge nonetheless intact. They will never be allowed to be permanently cut off, chopped up, or dismembered. But God waits patiently for Bnei Yisrael to begin the rectification, the process of remembering, before he steps in and does the heavy lifting of remembering the entire Jewish people, as signified in that key word, pakod, the secret password, the sod hageula, pakod, pakad. The women led by Miriam insisted on not allowing their men to remain dismembered. They reassembled, reformed their husband's perspectives, remembered them by insisting that they too look into those copper mirrors and see themselves for who they are today, remembering their identity, their past, their names, from where they came and what they can be and where the glorious future is that awaits them. The women insist that they see themselves in a better tomorrow, see the beauty behind their sullied veneers, the dignity and their heritage beneath their blackened faces. They insist on the future of Klal Yisrael, and only after the women remember their husbands does God descend and remember his people. Pakod, pakad, elokim etchem. Their insistent on making their husbands and families whole results in God allowing those efforts to succeed and hosts of Jewish babies are born as the Midrash says, Hashem pokdan la'alter. God waits for the people to make the first move and then after the nashim tzitkaniyot step up to the plate, God responds and takes action. It is therefore not surprising that this Midrash is told to us in Parshat Pikudei, the last Parsha of Sefer Shmot, a perfect bookend to our Parshat Shmot. For Sefer Shmot culminates with the identity of the Jewish people fully established, fully recognized, fully intact. It is in this Parsha appropriately named Pikudei, with the Shoresh of Pakad to fully remember, where tribute is extended, beneficence recounted and repaid, where the pakod of the righteous women through their ingenious utilization of the copper mirrors leading to the pakod, pakad of Hashem, is repaid in the utilization of those mirrors to form the copper wash basin used by the Kohanim. It is therefore not surprising that God rebuffs Moshe's argument that such tools of vanity, such as mirrors, have no place in the holy Mishkan. These mirrors, says God, are most beloved by me, as they produce the myriads of hosts of Israel through those Nashim Tzikaniyot, the righteous women of Israel. Thank you so much for studying with the OU Women's Initiative. I look forward to learning with you again next week.